I'm going to ask you to turn with me now in the Word of God to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. Our text this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and particularly verse 1, begins with what we might say is one of those signature statements that we find in the so-called pastoral epistles. And by the way, the pastoral epistles would include 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and and Titus. That, That signature statement is bound up in the very first words of our text. It's a trustworthy saying or a trustworthy statement. And there's some debate about whether this is the Apostle Paul's phrase. As if it's just the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit saying that whatever follows it is a trustworthy statement. There's some who make a good case that it could be um, a circulation statement. In other words, this is what everybody's saying. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, incorporates up that terminology and he applies it. But, But either way, it makes no difference to me whether the Apostle Paul, or whether it's the whole people of God agreeing universally on an idea, whatever follows it means that that thing is like gold. It's established. It's solid. It's emphatically true. Calvin takes just a moment here to say that the Apostle uses this particular phrase to to preface the text so that we would grasp that something of the greatest significance and importance is about to follow. And indeed it does. Because no sooner does the Apostle say this is a trustworthy statement than he goes on to complete it and indicate to us that which is trustworthy. And it's this. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work that he desires to do. And so the Apostle Paul, as he spotlights the work of overseer, he spotlights it with this very emphatic and important phrase. It's trustworthy. You can count on it. You can put it in the bank. This is good. The office of overseer. And here, obviously, the Apostle Paul is thinking of the office of elder. We'll get into this more in a moment. That there's, uh, there's just two offices in the church. We, we don't multiply offices. And the reason we don't multiply offices in the church is because church office isn't a human convention. Church office isn't something that a bunch of pious people got together and said, this would be good for the church if we had an elder, a pastor, or a deacon, or a teacher, or a counselor. Church office comes by the very institution of Jesus Christ, the king and head of the church. And it turns out, as you study the word of God, that Christ has only instituted two offices, and that is the office of elder, and that is the office of deacon. And we know, we'll talk about this just a little bit more in a moment, that within that office of elder, there are two different functions or works. There is the office of rule, and then there is the work also of preaching and teaching. But either way, the apostle here uses it in a general way. So whatever follows here, when he says this is a trustworthy statement, 
he spotlights the office of overseer, he's talking about eldership in as wide and broad of terms as he can. But the thing that really captures our attention this morning is not just that the Apostle Paul speaks of the eldership. The thing that really captures the attention is the work of it. The thing that he says about the work of it is that it is a fine work. That word fine literally means excellent. And so the thing that the Apostle Paul spotlights for us this morning, the thing that he would have us grasp and be impressed with, is the excellence of the work of the office of elder. And because the, the work is excellent, the Apostle Paul says something in response to that. He says, if any man aspires to this, he desires an excellent thing. It says, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work which he desires. In other words, the Apostle Paul says, of all of the things that are good and legitimate and godly to desire, here's one of them. Here's one of them. If you, if you are a male, if you are a man, if you are godly, here is something that Jesus Christ, under the inspiration, says to you. It's godly. It's righteous. It's, it's um, God-glorifying if you would desire this work. And so this morning, as I begin my exposition of the offices of the church and the qualifications for office in the church, I start with the excellence of the work of the office of elder. And I'll just be honest, uh, straight up front with you this morning, my main aim in expounding the excellence of this office is to move and to provoke and to incite and to inspire men who are in this congregation to long for and to desire this office. I'm preaching this this morning. I long for Christ to stir within us, to move men to desire to serve in this office, and beyond that, for others to serve in the office of the diaconate. And the motivating force of it, then, is for you to consider the excellence of the office. The excellence. And by the way, you might be saying this morning, well, uh, I'm a woman, so what difference does this make to me? It's a little bit dicey to preach to only a fraction of the congregation. I understand that. But, but the point of it is, the excellence of the work of the office of elder is for the spiritual blessing of the whole. Christ appointed this structure, and He appointed the excellence of the office of elder. And it means that when those who hear this and respond to it in faith and obedience, and they take up the office according to Christ's appointment, it's for the blessing of the whole congregation. That means all of us, male or female, young or old. And so this morning, I proclaim the excellence of the work of the office of elder and we're going to do so in three parts. A multifunctional work, a, a spiritually necessary work, and a Christ-ordained work. And so we think, first of all, of a multifunctional work. And I want to begin here with the obvious. But it's nonetheless important to state, the work of the office of elder is real work. 
Yes, I understand that the motivational plea or, or platform the Apostle uses to stir men up to seek this office is the excellence of it. But, but I begin with what's staring us right in the face. And that is, eldership is work. It's excellent work, but in reality it's work. In fact, the Greek word here is ergon, which means duty or task or or workmanship, and it requires uh, the idea of somebody doing something out of a sense of duty, labor. And so here, the apostle describes it in terms of work, and they got to thinking, um, you know what, that's kind of a common way to speak about church office in the New Testament. So I'm just going to work through a series of texts here to reinforce this idea. Because I think it's so important. If I'm going to seek to, to motivate with the Word of God this morning, uh, some men to seek to take up this office, then you need to understand what's true about it. And one of the truths about this office is its work. And so Acts 13.2 says, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, uh, Barnabas and Saul, for the work... I have called them too. We have the same word there, ergon, and the church is at prayer, and they're seeking the guidance and direction of the Spirit of God about the way forward for the congregation. It turns out as they're praying, the Holy Spirit directs them to, to raise up these men for missionary labor as part of the office of eldership. And, and I'm struck by the fact that this is the Holy Spirit's verbiage. The Holy Spirit's manner of describing the work of ministry is work. He says, set them apart for the work which I have called them to. That seems to have stamped itself upon subsequent discussion because as you move on in the, in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts, this is what you find. Acts 14.26 From there they sailed to Antioch from which they had commended, been committed to the grace of God for the work. Notice here, as Luke describes that the missionaries are coming back at the end of the first missionary journey, he picks up the very language of the Holy Spirit and now describes the work of missions and of ministry and eldering in the exact same language and describes it as work. Then you have Acts 15.38. Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along. That's John Mark who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. But, but there's one other passage where we have um, real redundancy, and that's 1 Thessalonians 5.12. We have real redundancy and development, I could say here. 1 Thessalonians 5.12-13 to but we request of you, brethren, you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love for their work. Here's the apostle again describing the, the ministry, and he describes the ministry in terms of ergon, that is work, that is duty, that is the exercise of, of labor to accomplish some task. We have that same word in verse 13. But it looks back to verse 12, and, and I want you how you notice uh, Paul describes the work of eldering in verse 12. He says, diligently labor among you. Now this word kapiao means to work really hard. 
to the point of exhaustion. It's, it's the word that the Apostle Paul uses to describe his own work. Not, not ministry work, but, but tent-making work where he built things with his hands out of leather. And uh, if we were to have taken a look at the Apostle's hand, you would have seen somebody who had the gnarly, calloused hands. Because he had learned a trade from his youth and he had been engaged in, in hard, exhausting labor. And he uses this particular word to describe that work. But as a man who was acquainted with work, he talks about the work of the ministry here and the work of eldering. And this is the term that he reserves for it. Kapiao, he says, you respect those who diligently labor in the work. Same word used in 1 Timothy 5.17 where Paul says there's some who work hard at preaching and teaching. Another word is used in 2 Timothy 2.15 Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who need not to be ashamed. Here he calls the work of ministry and eldering the work of a workman, of a laborer. And he reinforces the calling to exert energy and time and talent and industry to it by saying, you be diligent at it. And beyond that, he says, you be diligent so that you don't have to be ashamed. Well, what's the implication? That, that a person who is elected to serve in the office of the elder and they don't work hard at it, the apostle is saying, it's a shame. It's a shame to not be diligent in the labor of eldership. The sobriety of it all comes from the latter phrase, he presents himself to God. All of the work, and here's our Reformation slogan, Coram Deo, is before the face of God. It's in the Lord. It pertains to spiritual matters and spiritual things, and it's under the, to the watchful eye of Christ. Who will require pastors and elders to give an account? their work. And the first thing that I just want to establish here is I think about the multifunctional nature of the work of eldership. The one thing that does need to be established is that it is work and that it's tiresome work. I have to admit that I feel silly about this. But after I'm done with session meetings and presbytery meetings and synod meetings, I'm exhausted. And I don't know why, because I haven't lifted a finger. But I'm exhausted, and it seems to go back to this, that spiritual work, when you exercise and exert yourself at it, makes you tired. Admonishing is work. Spiritual discipline is work. Exercising oversight is work. And so I said I'm preaching this sermon with an aim to stir up with the Word of God and the influence of the Holy Spirit. Men in this congregation will step forward and say, maybe it's me. I have to be honest with you up front. If it is you, you need to know, you need to count up the cost in advance that what you'll be committing yourself to is work. And in the RPCNA, you're committing yourself to a lifetime of work. You see, not in every Reformed denomination is it the case that if somebody serves as an elder, that they serve for their life. Usually they serve for a three-year term, and they rotate off, and depending on the situation and the context, they may never serve again. But it's not so here. 
in the RPCNA, if a, if a man is elected and ordained and installed to the office of elder in a particular congregation, he holds that office until he dies. Or he is relieved of his duty due to infirmity or dereliction of service. Which means a life of labor, of being exhausted by the work of eldering. And I have to say that this is so important for me to stress this morning because uh, our presbytery, as you know, has a lack of elders. We have a lack of pastors. We have a lack of elders. And one reason why is because the work is hard. I talk to so many elders who tell me they are just utterly burnt out. And they wonder whether they should just resign their office. They're exhausted with the care of souls and the concerns of the church and people's sins and trials and burdens and sorrows. But the reason why it's work is because Christ made it that way. I'm setting forth the excellence of the office and the excellence of the office is bound up with its work. But here's one of the things about it that you may not associate with excellence is it'll make you tired because it's work. As I think about this, we already said a couple of things that I want to clarify and make this a shift gears, not a sort of a teaching component here for a moment, is that, is that there's one office of elder. And within that office are a couple of different sorts of functions. And I, I need to say that because what I'm asking you to do based upon the exposition of the Word of God is consider the office and you need to consider what it is you're being called to. I don't expect this morning that as I preach this series that, that a whole bunch of people are going to decide to sign up for the ministry of the Word. It's fine if you do. We need ministers, that's for sure. But most likely, more people will sense a call to being a ruling elder. And so we need to think a minute about this, that we have this one office of elder. We have two offices in the church, that of elder and that of deacon. But, you know, within this one office of elder, we have different sets of, of functions. We have ruling elders, and, and we have teaching elders, and, and any more than that. And one reason why sometimes that gets muddied, and why some churches multiply offices, is because there are different titles in the Word of God for the same function. For example, if you were to take our text here, 1 Timothy 3, and turn over just a few pages in your Bible to Titus chapter 1, you'll see virtually the same information that is supplied here. Virtually the same. But the situation is a bit different because the Apostle Paul is writing not to Timothy, but to Titus. But, but I want you to notice here that the office is the same even though the language diff is different. Verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders. You know, some people look at that and say, well, look, Paul's talking about some translations have bishop here. And they go, well, there's another church office. And, and then overseer. And then some people, well, there's elder and there's another office. And pretty soon we've got all kinds of offices in the church. Acolyte and reader and this and that and the... No, there's not a difference in office here just simply because there's a difference in terminology. And the reason why I can be confident in that is because verse 5 says, appoint elders, and then look at verse 7. The overseer, it's a different Greek term. It's episkopos, not presbyteros. But Paul hasn't left off talking about elders. He's expanding upon it by amplifying the qualification. He's using two different terms 
to refer to the same office. Elder and bishop are synonymous terms. It would be a vast mistake and a biblical misinterpretation to add new offices to the church based upon the difference in title. Because it's all the same office. You can confirm that for yourself again in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, where you read the Apostle Paul called for the elders of Ephesus to meet him on the Isle of Miletus. And by the time you get down to verse 28, this is what you read. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among the Holy Spirit of God has made you overseers. Episcopos. It's not presbyteros. He used that as elders in verse 17. But here he uses that overseers. It's a synonymous term. He's speaking to the same people who have the same office. The point of it all is to see there's the office of elder and an office of deacon. We don't multiply offices. We have one office here that we're thinking about. We think of rule in the church and that's the office of elder. So what do they do? I need to get us closer now to the to the multifunctional work, which gets us into the idea of the excellence of the work. But, but within this one office, a couple of different functions, right? Well, the easiest place to see that is 1 Timothy 5.17. 1 Timothy 5.17, where the Apostle Paul says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So the subject matter is elders, but the functionality is slightly different because as the Apostle Paul says, there are some who rule well, and then there are some who are within the office of eldership who work hard at preaching and teaching. John Calvin looks at this and he says, we may learn that there were two kinds of elders, for not all are ordained to teach. These words plainly mean there were some men who ruled well, but who did not teach. So there's your functions within the office of eldership. You have those who are committed to the office of rule, and then you have those who are committed to the office of teaching and preaching right alongside the office of rule. It doesn't make a pastor less of a ruler. It just means that his emphasis is more on one than the other. But the reality is, I'm an elder. We use the title pastor sometimes to refer to those who teach and rule. But the reality is, I'm an elder, just as Elder Spitzer is an elder, and just as Elder Oscar is our elder emeritus. We're all equal in office. We hold the same thing. With different functions. So what are the functions? Well, come back to me with uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, because here we're going to pick up two particular excellent functions and works of the office of the ruling elder. When we're thinking about what are the elements of rule which uh, express the function of the, the shepherding elder or the ruling elder, there, there's a couple of things that are listed here. And these are some of the things that are part of the excellent work of the eldership. And so, here the Apostle Paul says, We request of you, brethren, you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. 
So what's one of the first excellent functions or works of the eldership? Well, you have it right here. Those who have charge over you. And the word means oversight. Oversight. Paul uses that very same term in our text in in 1 Timothy 3 where he talks about how elders are to manage their house well. Otherwise, how will they manage the household of God? The verb is the same. The word is exactly the same. It's oversight. Fathers, you have the oversight of your home. That's what God ordained you to have. He did not give your wife the oversight. It doesn't mean that that her word and opinion means nothing. It doesn't mean she does nothing. In fact, your wife will probably do way more work around the house and in the house than you do. Quite likely that's the case. But management doesn't mean you do everything. Manage means you oversee it. And in a properly, biblically working home, uh, the husband oversees it, and he does some of the work, and the wife does some of the work, and the children even do some of the work. I know it's a shocking idea for people anymore for children to work around the house. But I grew up in a house full of six kids, and believe me, if, if you weren't up by the time the sun rose, you were late. Because there's a lot of chores to do on the family farm. And somebody's not getting breakfast if they sleep in. That's just the way it is. We don't have time to wait for everybody. We all get up at once and we work. And we don't have dinner until the work's done at night. Lots of people doing lots of things. And you young people, you need to help your mom and your dad out in the house. Don't make them say, take out the garbage. Young boys and girls, you're there to help your mom and dad. If your dad and your mom have to be strong and stern with you, that's the way it goes. Management is with the father. He makes sure the work gets done. So let's be obedient to God. Honor father and mother. But see, the word here, charge over, is this idea of oversight. Now it's applied here. We know it's a spiritual oversight because He charged you in the Lord. You see, this is about spiritual oversight. This is about the oversight of the soul of the believer. Hebrews 13.17 uses this very same term. And we're going to come back to this text more in a while, but here's what it says. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. You know, the word here is slightly different than the one in 1 Thessalonians 5.12. The word here, keep watch over, means to lie awake. I told you about the work of eldership. It'll make you tired. But here's one of the ironies of it. While you're tired in the middle of the night, you wake up thinking about the church. You wake up thinking about people's problems. You wake up wondering what's going to happen. You're worried about people and their sufferings and their sins and, and all of that. This is the term, lie awake. There's an overwatch that has been appointed. There is a guard duty that is Christ-given. We'll come back to this more in a moment. But what we're trying to sweep out here is what is the excellent work. And the excellent work of the office of ruling elder is this spiritual oversight of souls. You've got to love people to be an elder. You won't seek to oversee anybody if you don't love them. If you don't care for them. 
Believe me, every dad who watches over his home loves his children. He'd do anything for them. Paul uses the analogy of how you work in the home with how you work in the church. You do it because you love the people of God. Charge over. But how about this? The next one that we find here in our text is admonition. The apostle speaks of the second excellent work of the elder is give you instruction. And uh, that's a botched translation for sure. Because it means admonition. It comes from the word nutheteo, which means corrective influence. Corrective influence. It's to reprimand and to warn. It's moral appeal. It is to come alongside someone and not in arrogance or haste or heavy-handedness, but for sure out of love and to say, if you keep on this path, I want you to know that it intersects with a train, that a freight train that is racing towards you and will run over your life and leave its rail tracks across your back. Corrective influence, reprimand, moral appeal. The same word is used in 2 Corinthians or Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. Anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of them. Yet don't regard them as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. There's your term that's called instruction over here. And I said it's admonition. And here's properly translated. Admonish him. He says there's going to be people in the church who don't listen to the word of God. What does the elder do? Whistle? Put his hands in his pocket? No. Admonish. Moral appeal. Corrective influence. Notice they're called a brother. That means you you treat them in that way. In a brotherly way. You say, you know what? If you keep doing this, you're just going to make shipwreck of your life. Listen. Listen and you'll live. Put away your sins. Corrective influence. The final thing that is part of the excellent work of of the elder, we've seen the oversight, we've seen the admonition, but the last is spiritual discipline. This may be the the most unsavory excellent work, but it's still an excellent work. Westminster Confession, I'm just going to go straight to it, says the Lord Jesus King and Head of His Church has appointed government in the hands of church officers, and they're distinct from the civil magistrate. And these officers, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed. Think about this. There's nothing almost more sobering to know that in your hands as an elder rest the keys of the kingdom of God to open and to close the kingdom under Christ's authority and according to His Word. And what are those keys? It goes on to spell out those keys in paragraph 4, but it speaks of admonition, suspension from the sacrament of the supper, and excommunication from the church. That's the excellent work, and it's a terrifying work. You have watched me repeatedly over the years announce the excommunication of members with tears. And believe me, that's not even a portion of what I've shed. It is heartbreaking to take somebody who used to guard as a brother in Christ and to exercise those keys. No one wants to turn those keys. It's heartbreaking. It's hard. 
But the apostle says it's an excellent work. Why? Because Christ has to be vindicated. It's not about my emotion at the end of the day. Christ must be vindicated. The string must be shown that the way is so severe that they're regarded as cast outside of the kingdom. The people of God have to be protected. We can't just let it go unchecked and, 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 and not disciplined because when that happens, the Word of God teaches us that sin spreads in the congregation like cancer. So you can't allow it to happen. If you love the rest of the people of God, you've got to exercise the keys. And it's an excellent work, even though it's one that's full of the fear of God. But here the Apostle says... If you do that work, it's an excellent, it's a fine work. People of God, these are the excellent works which are commendable if you aspire to them. So let me ask this morning, do you regard these as excellent works? Do you regard spiritual oversight as an excellent work? Do you regard corrective instruction and admonition as a as an excellent work? Do you regard the work of church discipline, which is for the vindication of Christ's glory and the good of the people of God and the restoration of the, of the sinner's soul, do you regard that as an excellent work? Well, you should, because Christ commends it. The Holy Spirit commends it. The Apostle Paul commends it. And if you read this statement, it's a trustworthy statement, the whole church universally agreed that it's an excellent work. And if you agree it's a fine work, then you have to desire it. If you believe those are fine works, excellent works, you have to desire it. I don't know whether Christ is calling you. You don't even know probably. But at least you should desire it. It's a fine thing. Christ's church must be kept. It's a Christ-ordained work. And here, I just want you to flip with me over to Ephesians 4. We've been through this passage so many times, but I had to connect it to the excellence of the work. And I, I almost know of no passage which sweeps it out this clearly before. And the excellence of the work of the eldership is that it's Christ-ordained, Christ-instituted. We've already talked about how we don't have office in the church based upon human convention or design. We don't have it because a bunch of pious and holy people got together and said it would be a really good idea for the church to have elders and deacons. Now we have all of this because of Christ. He's the authoritative king and head of his church. And so it begins here, our text, where I'm, where I'm aiming to go. And by the way, I'll just let you know I'm aiming at verse 13. But, but where I'm going to begin is is the exalted Christ in verse 10. He who descended is Himself. He who ascended far above all heavens so that He might fill all things. That's Christ. If you go back to chapter 1, you can see the exaltation of Jesus Christ because we're told there that when He was raised from the, the, the dead, the Father in heaven seated Him His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but that which is to come. And He's put everything under His feet and gave Him His head over the church. All things. That's the same Christ in view here in verse 10. And so the Apostle, as he's talking about the institution of church office, starts by the exaltation of Jesus Christ. 
He says the reason why there is church office is because Christ is the exalted head of the church. And He is ordained to do something. The thing that He ordained to do is in verse 11. And He gave. The reason why we have office in the church is because of Christ. He gave. The giving of Christ in these offices equals His institution of them. And you see a series of offices here. Some are extraordinary and some are ordinary. We have the extraordinary apostles, prophets, and evangelists. And then you have pastor, teacher. That's the last office. And it's governed by a single article. It means it's, it's one office. And that word pastor is synonym for elder. So we know he's talking about elders here. Sure, he's taking them. And some in part has to do with the, the teaching elder. But, but at bottom line, most rudimentary and fundamentally and essentially... He's saying Christ gave the gift of of eldership to the church. So why did He give it? Look at verse 12. Oh, man. I have the wrong translation in front of me. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up the body of Christ. Wrong. I don't have time to correct it, but here's how it should read. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, and for the building up of the body. They are three concurrent prepositional phrases, they are the reasons for why Christ gave office. He gave it for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the building up of the body. Those are what we might say the near purposes, right? They are the near purposes of Christ in, in instituting office in His church. What, what Jesus Christ purposed to do was to perfect for ministry and for building. Remember how I told you to put your finger on verse 13? That's where I'm really headed? Well, look at the ultimate purpose in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The preposition until which begins verse 13 is now saying, how long will these offices be in the church? And the answer is until kingdom come. And what will be the purpose, the the long-term purpose of the giving of the offices in the church? Well, it couldn't be spelled out more clearly. It's in black and white. The unity of the faith and to a mature man. Why is the office of eldership given to the church? Because Christ would have us unite in a common confession of faith. And Christ would have each and every one grow into spiritual maturity. And he links those ends directly to the office of eldership. Eldership is responsible for promoting true doctrinal unity. And the eldership is responsible for promoting true spiritual maturity. By the way, when you read that phrase, mature man, I'm just going to give you an insight where I'm going to plug that in. Mature man. You say, what does a mature man look like? That's a good question. A mature man looks like the qualifications for the office of elder and deacon. Keep that in your back of your head because that's what we're thinking of. We know what maturity is. But you see, I, I told you I'm trying to seek to motivate, to seek the office. 
And the way I'm doing that is the way Apostle Paul did, which was by showing you the excellence of the work. And the excellence of the work is not just that it involves the oversight and the admonition and the spiritual discipline, but the excellence of the work is it's Christ instituted. Christ is in the office. Christ is the great ruling elder of the church. Christ is the great teaching elder of the church. Christ is the great diaconal servant of the church. And he uses the offices as the hands and feet of duty. So it's Christ-centered, it's Christ-given, and it's for great Christ-ordained ends. <laughs> Unity and confession, the pursuit of spiritual maturity. Godly elders help the church pursue this. Finally, the last excellence I want to highlight this morning, and you can just flip over there with me, that's Hebrews thirteen seventeen. <clears throat> The last part of the excellence I want to expound this morning is, is this idea of, of the excellence of the work. And the excellence of it is the spiritual necessity of the work. The spiritual necessity of the work. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give account. The spiritual necessity, that's the thing I'm trying to pluck from this text here. The spiritual necessity is signaled by that preposition for. Okay? The whole argument hinges on that and the adverb as. But just look at it. We have two commandments here given to all members of the church. Obey and submit. If you ever wondered on a Tuesday afternoon what Christ called you to do, here's two things. Obey and submit. To whom? It says the leaders. Who are the leaders? Obviously, the office of elder. Office of elder. But why are you to do that? Why are you to obey and to submit? In things pertaining to Christ and spiritual matters, why? Well, for, we've already seen this first part, they give an account they watch over your souls, you see. They have spiritual oversight. Christ has appointed the office of elder to give spiritual oversight. We don't do this as lone rangers or as rugged individualists. We do it together. Our pursuit of the kingdom of God and heaven's gates happens in community, it happens in the church, it happens in the body of Christ, and it happens in the context of the rule and the offices appointed by Jesus Christ. But you know the thing that really gets me here is not the four, but the as. It's not just that they give overwatch. It's the manner in which they give as those who give an account. You see, the full motivation of the pastor here, which he gives to the members of the church to obey and submit, is not just that the leaders have overwatch. It's the nature and the manner of it as those who give account to Christ. You see, Christ has so ordered your spiritual journey and your spiritual life that it requires this. 
Every single one of us are under this. Every single one. Even pastors and elders are under this because we're under a presbytery, which is under a synod. All of us. And Christ has structured our spiritual pathway to heaven in such a way that what we need is oversight of those who give account as those who give account. Yes, I have, a, I have a duty to my own self-watch. I, I must do that. But there's a twofold watch. My own and Christ through the eldership. The excellent work is the eldership is involved in that overwatch as those who give account. If you long to be a part of helping your fellow brothers and sisters make their way through this life and not fall short of heaven's gates, you should consider this office. Because this is an excellent work which Christ has appointed and instituted in His church. Not just oversight, but oversight of those who give an account. So there's the excellence of the work. It's multifunctional, it's Christ appointed, and it's, and it's spiritually necessary. And so I conclude here uh, my message this morning with a challenge, and it's bound up with the words of our text, if any man. He didn't say some men. He didn't say a few men. He didn't say particularly older men. He says, if any man. So if you're male this morning, where God is speaking directly to you. And then this is what he says. He commends any man who aspires to the office of elder. And the motive he commends for seeking that office is because it's about excellent work. Every man who looks at this work and says it's excellent work ought to really think and say, is God calling me to this kind of service to Christ. He's a very interesting word here at the last part of, of our text as he says desires. Do you know what that word literally means? Epitumeo? To set your heart on it. To set your heart on it. Along with the Apostle Paul to move any man here to set their heart upon excellent work. But I know there's an obstacle. I know there's an obstacle as I say that this morning. And it's this. Pastor Don, what you've just outlined in the Word of God about what elders do terrifies me. It terrifies me. And I said, well, it did John Calvin too. Listen to this. If anyone object the government of the church is a matter of so great difficulty that it ought rather to strike terror in the minds of persons of sound judgment than excite them to desire it, I reply, the desire of great men does not rest on confidence in their own industry or virtue, but on the assistance of God for whom is our sufficiency. <laughs> you know John Calvin got called into the ministry? 
Will Farrell met him at the gates of the city of Geneva while he was fleeing to go take the quiet life of a scholar. And he put his finger in his chest. God will condemn and curse the rest of your life unless you make a U-turn and go back into town and you take up the ministry of the work. He wanted nothing to do with the ministry because it struck great terror into his soul. I believe this is a little bit of autobiography when he says, some will say it ought to strike terror. How will you ever move them? And the answer is, because the sufficiency is not in you. Do you know who felt that before the Apostle Paul? Or rather for Calvin? <laughs> is the Apostle Paul. It's a statement that's always stuck in my head. He said, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for these things? The question answers itself. No one. No one. But the answer comes. Our sufficiency is of Christ. So I appeal to you this morning. Are you a man? If you check that box, I have another question for you. Do you view the work of eldership as excellent as Christ does, as the Spirit of God does and Paul does? Well, you had to agree. Yes, you do. Well, then it's good for you to desire the work. It's good for you to desire the work. It's good to set your heart upon the work. I don't know if that's Christ's will for you, but it's good to desire the work. And if you desire the work, then it's time to take up the challenge of considering that calling by committing yourself to the cultivation of the qualities of those who fill this office. And that's what we can, we'll take up again next week. We know what the office is. But how do we get ready for it? I pray that the Spirit of God will lay the word on your heart this morning.